Blog Talk Radio. Good Saturday morning, the first Saturday in August. August the second, the day's my oldest brother's birthday, so happy brother to my brother Rick out there. So I want to welcome all of you to Blog Talk Radio's Off the Shelf. It's it, they said we were supposed to have a rainy weekend. It's a little cloudy here in Philadelphia, but I see the sun, more sun than clouds, so I appreciate that. And thank you again for joining us. For those who've been with us for going on 11 years, our loyal, loyal listeners who were with us even when we were over at Blake Radio, if you guys can remember that on Rainbow Soul Channel, and they still play wonderful jazz over there. That, that was started by Neil Blake, and he's still running that. And now we're at Blake Radio. But I want to thank all of our loyal listeners who've been with us for more than 10 years, so thank you. And for those, it's your, you might just be looking for something to do on a Saturday morning, whether you dial into the show, go into the chat room, or click on a link to get to the show. I want to introduce myself to you. I'm your host, Denise Turney, and as I always say, I'm coming to you live from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, the city of brotherly love. And you hear me say it so often, and it's still not enough. I just truly thank you. I can hardly believe it's been over 10 years already. But I thank you for your support. And please go out and pick up a copy of my new book, Love Pour Over Me. You can read free excerpts at my website, chistel.com, C-H-I-S-T-E-L-L.com. And you can get it at any ebook, print book, Amazon, uh, Barnes & Noble, Walmart, you name it, wherever you see books. If you don't see it on the shelf, just ask the clerk for it because it's carried by the largest book distributors in the world, and they can order a special copy of Love Pour Over Love Pour Over Me for you. And now let us go and meet our very special off-the-shelf guest. And our guest today is Patricia Haley Glass. She's an Illinois native. If we have any Illinois off-the-shelf listeners joining us. She's also a national best-selling author, and Patricia's earned an MBA from the University of Chicago. Her novels include Nobody's Perfect, No Regrets, Blind Faith, Blessed Assurance, Still Waters, Let Sleeping Dogs Lie, The Midnight Clear, Broken, Destined, and Humbled. Her book, Chosen, was nominated as the best Christian fiction of 2009. And No Regrets is an Essence Magazine bestseller, and Blind Faith won the 2003 Romance and Color Award, BET New Spirit Book of the Year Award. You can learn more about Patricia and her books by visiting her website, which is www.patriciahaley.com, and I'll spell that for you, P-A-T-R-I-C-I-A-H-A-L-E-Y.com, and again, that is P A. T R I C I A H A L E Y dot com, Patricia Haley dot com. Welcome to Off the Shelf, Patricia. Thank you for having me, Denise. I'm so honored to be here. And and just can I just say, Adam, peace there. I'm from Illinois, but my husband is from West Philly. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. I'm actually from Ohio, but I live in I've lived in Philadelphia for Several years, my my ex husband's from Trenton. That's how I got into got to this area. But yeah, so Philadelphia and then then in Illinois. I like to give our listeners backstory on the guests before I go into talking about their books and their careers because we've had different types of guests on. Not all writers, some small business owners, some uh, uh, 
artists like painters, and then, of course, the bulk of our guests are writers, but I'd like to give them backstory. So what was life like growing up in Rockford, Illinois, for you, Patricia? <laughs> you know, I have a – it's interesting you say that. I love my childhood growing up. I came from a really big family. My mother came from a family of 11, and many of them, you know, migrated up from Mississippi, and many of her sisters and brothers were there, so I had tons of cousins. So we always had a very close family, spending Sundays at, you know, the grandparents, and so that part of life was good. You know, for me, I tended to be, when I went through school, um, Rockford is a – it's a small town. It has about 150,000 people, and probably 15% of that is, is, is black, you know. And so no matter what school you go to in Rockford, you're never going to have the majority of the, of the um, students be, uh, you know, the black population. So, And I happen to be one of those kids that just really like school. You know, I like math and science and things like that. And, and so I was one of those um, bookworms, you know, the little nerd. So it was, it was interesting because I did really well in school, and sometimes it was, it was tough because, you know, I would literally have people pick on me. People would tell me at lunchtime that they were going to beat me up after school for no really? reason. <laughs> for no reason. And my brother, my brother to this day, my brother is like one of my heroes because my brother would always, he would fight girls and boys, anybody that was, you know, messing with his little sister. So, And I say that to say that, you know, it's, you fast forward and get to where you are now, where I am now, but, you know, you think about these little pieces that could easily just, just you know, discourage a person from pursuing what it is they want to do, not even knowing that you're pursuing anything in particular. But I knew really at an early age that I wanted to, to, to go to college because my aunt was a, a teacher at, at my school, so I knew I wanted to do that. So it was like always before me. So I just, you know, did, did well in school. But in Rockford, it was tough because during the day at school, you know, I'm in a predominantly, um, you know, white environment, and, and but on the weekends and evenings I'm with, you know, my black family and cousins. So for me, it really worked out that I just got such a balance in life that can really just learn to adapt around just about any kind of person. And that's that's really been a positive for me. Okay. Wow. I'm, see, Rockford, Illinois, I've never, I don't even know if I've heard of it before. The, <laughs> excuse me, when I think of Illinois, I think of Chicago. So I really appreciate what you shared. And I'm sure to off-the-shelf listeners, it probably opened their eyes a little bit more about Rockford. What what when you were a child, Patricia? What did you dream when you dreamed? If you did, now all kids don't do this because I think kids live in the moment, which is a very good thing. But what did you dream of becoming when you were a child? A teacher, without a question. I was going to be a teacher because my aunt was a teacher, and and to give some, you know, to give some um, some some um, what do you call it? Some perspective on it. I was in elementary school, you know, in the 60s. And so my aunt was a teacher. And for my aunt to have been a teacher back then, I mean, she went to college in like the 40s and the 50s. And, and particularly in the 40s, you know, that's uh, back then for, particularly for African Americans to be able to go to college, period, was mm-hmm. huge. And I had several aunts that were teachers, and my fathers were, you know, construction workers, had all gone to trade school and things. So for me, seeing her in that school, she was my image of what I was supposed to be when I grew up. So I knew I was going to be a teacher, hands down. It wasn't until I got older, and my, my, my doctor actually told me I was, um, I was going to, I, I, math and science were my, my areas that I did really well and excelled in, actually. So 
I told him that I was going to be a math teacher. And he said, well, what about engineering? I'm like, engineering, what's that? Literally, I didn't know in the 70s what that was. I knew about the train con- you know, conductors. I thought that's what he meant by engineer. He's like, no, you know, the people that, you know, mold and shape things and, you know, um, you know the, the people that use their math and science to help, you know, um, build, and, build things and, you know, and design things and all that kind of stuff. And I said, oh, so I went to college, and sure enough, I majored in engineering because somebody had dropped that seed in my head that here's something else you can do with the skills and talents that you have. And so I decided to forego teaching, and I majored in engineering. Ah, interesting. You sort of segue into my next question. I was going to ask you, you know, you have your engineering degree. Do you still work as an engineer? I will – I. Yes and no. I mean, I don't – my engineering degree, fortunately for me, when I went to Stanford, it was um, – they were cutting edge. They were, like, focusing on management styles and things like that way before other places were doing it. So when I got out, when I went to business school, you know, it was very much a lot of what I had already had in my engineering. So I majored in finance and marketing. What the Lord has allowed me to do is have a job now as a senior project manager where I get to use all my skills. I, I basically mm. just run – run a, a group, a team, help run a team of like 140 people stationed all around the world. Literally, my team is all around the world. And I get to use all my pieces. And But at the end of the day, what the, the thing that allows me to be most successful in my job is just communication, being able to say what you mean, mean what you say, understand people, listen to, to their perspectives, and be able to treat everybody the same. I mean, mm. I reported to the chief. I have literally reported to chief officers. My my boss, chief officer, the the CEO, the CFO, the senior chief marketing officers. I've also I treat them the exact same as I treat the people in the mailroom. I treat the security people. People are people to me. I don't care what your title is. I don't care what your background is. People are people, and that's the thing that I've learned that when you genuine people, when you treat everybody the same. You can't put people on pedestals and treat this person better because mm-hmm. you think they have more. You treat everybody the same, I guarantee you it comes back a hundredfold all positive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think, I think and, and uh, the staff, they notice that. And I, it, it's, it's rare, though, because you do see people when the CEO or their manager comes by, they act a little different. Mm-hmm. And, you know, everybody's got to go out of their way for this person because they sign the paychecks. You know, and then that fear of not getting laid off. So that's good, though, that you that you treat everybody like that. And I'm sure your staff and the people that you work around appreciate that. Have you ever taken your corporate? This, I mean, myself having worked in the corporate environment for several couple of decades at least. There's so much that goes on, really, in any community. You take any group of people. I don't care where it is. It could be in a tribe, in a jungle, wherever. There's going to be things happening just when you get all these different minds and thoughts together. Have you ever taken any of your corporate experiences and integrated them into your novels? And if so, why or why not? Absolutely. And I wouldn't say, like, um, specific job situations, but the overall atmosphere, like, like, one of the things I did in this series, that my, my latest series, the Mitchell Family Drama Series, which has Chosen, Destined, Broken, Anointed, all those, it centers around this family. And the key elements of that story is it's, it's, um, it's a family that's going through. They're, they're, they have their own company, and it's, it's on the corporate scene. I mean, many of the scenes and the, the confrontations and things they have are, you know, dealing with some corporate issues. 
And but it's not a turnoff for people who said I'm not all into all that. It's just family drama brought into the workplace. And and also in this series, one of the key pieces is that I take you know there's scenes around the world. Like you know there's some pieces, key pieces that happen in South Africa. Some key pieces happen in India. And all my stories, I write about places that I've been or places that I, I that I love or, or things like that. But I I started to bring all of that into the story, including the corporate piece. So when you read through the Mitchell family, you know, drama series, it's filled with corporate intrigue. I mean, they have all kinds of things that are going on the business side, but it's not overwhelming because it flows right into the personalities of, you know, the strong-willed, you know, the dominant mother, the matriarch, the, you know, the, the father that's kind of passive, the kids who are all biting for their pieces of this and what they think they're entitled to, and that's how the war keeps going on throughout this family. But, yeah, I have I decided in this series to take all the things I love, travel, the corporate side of me, you know, the family side of me, incorporate all that into this series. That's why I think it's, it's been well-received, and I, I love writing it. It's been a pleasure writing this series to me. Okay. Is there is there, before we go and start talking about your latest novel, is there a single event that inspired you? You wanted to be a teacher when you were younger. You had aunts who were teachers, and then you, somebody put the thought to be an engineer in your head, and you went into engineering. Now you're a project manager. Is there is Was there a single event, though, that inspired you to sit down and start writing a novel. You know, I can't I can't say there was a single event. What I did do is I just one day started thinking about it. Now I think back I actually have always been done well in writing. Well, when I was in high school I did very well. I remember I had to write a couple of stories and my teachers were like, Oh, that's really, really good. You should really think about, you know, taking this for it. Now, that was my English teacher, and I'm like, yeah, 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 I'm not doing that. I'm majoring in math and science. <laughs> you, know, so, you know, I didn't think anything about it. But later in, in, in life, when I, I just literally just sat down. For me, coming from my family, like my grandfather on my mother's side is a great storyteller. I remember times when we would be all in the living room, you know, 20, 20 people or so, and he's telling stories about Mississippi and things in his past, and we're all just sitting there enthralled, like, you know, literally sitting around, you know, everywhere, just listening. And he was a great storyteller. And, and I see that in my, my aunts and uncles, my mother, and my father's side as well. They're great storytellers. So that piece is something that you just, you just have. You just, you just, it's just in you. You're able to, you know, if you see something happen, you don't come and say, oh, I saw Johnny today. I might say, oh, I saw my husband. I was driving down the street, and, you know, I saw this and saw it. Then I saw Johnny. Like, mine is a whole lead up to the, the one statement versus somebody say, I just saw Johnny today, you know. Uh-huh. So for me... <laughs> It was, in, you know what I mean? It was like, it was in me. And so I just sat down literally and just started writing. It literally was that, that simple. I'm like, oh, let me write something. Just kind of relaxed myself. I was working like 60 hours a week on a project at that time. And uh, it just gave me something to do. And, and before I knew like it, it was you needed something story. to do? You working 60 hours a week? I'm working 60 hours a week at the time. And it just gave me something to do. <laughs> You know, you gotta you gotta have something that releases that mind. You know, you're you know, I need to just take a break, like a mental break. Now you think we're like, well, writing a book is not a mental break. Well, everybody has what it is that you know lets them relax. And I I was just letting my mind wander and just writing stuff down. And and quite honestly, the story that I started writing at that time is not the one I in that that was not nobody's perfect. Nobody's perfect was my first book, but before that, I start playing around with other some other story, just typing something out, really. Mm-hmm. 
Wow. Can you give off-the-shelf listeners a brief overview of your new novel, Humbled? Humbled is the sixth book in the Mitchell family drama series. And what I did is, some years ago, I started the series by taking the story of King David and King Solomon in the Bible. And Mm. I took that. I love King David because King David is known as a man after God's own heart. He's known God gave him tremendous favor and blessings and just, uh, I mean, just tremendous power. And But David was a man who, you know, he committed sin. He was, you know, he, he, he had one woman, Bathsheba, who he saw this woman that he wanted, and he took her husband and sent him to the front line of war and had him killed just so he could justify sleeping with a man's wife. You know, mm-hmm. he, he did some things. But... And things happened to him. You know, he had some things that happened that he caused, some that happened to him. But one thing about King David is that when he sinned or fell short of what he thought God's expectations were, he repented. He asked God to forgive him. Once he would forgiven himself and God had forgiven him, he let it go. It was done. It was never to be brought up again. He lived his life as though he had never sinned before. That is what God intends for our lives, even though most of us don't get there. We either have things, we hold on to things that we've done, even when we've asked God to forgive us, or we don't feel like we're worthy to be forgiven, or we don't don't even feel like other people are worthy to be forgiven. So we hold on to stuff, and it just, it becomes this weight that just holds us down and doesn't let us soar like we should be because we're holding on to stuff from the past. David was like, when I'm forgiven, I'm done, I'm good. Now that can be hard because in this modern-day story where I have it, where he's, you know, he's falling short, he's had an affair with his secretary and everything, and he, you know, he repents, forgives, and moves on. People, there's still consequences. Like a baby came out of it. There's consequences you can't get past. But other people can't get past it. You may be free. You may be forgiven. David was free and forgiven. But his kids had to live out these issues that they weren't able to get over as quickly. Mm-hmm. And that's where the story falls. I brought it into modern-day time where this husband and wife, Madeline and David, we backstart this corporation. They're helping churches and then they build this big, you know, multi-million dollar um, business. Dave, David gets sick, and he um, realizes that he has to hand his, his company over to one of his sons, the son, oldest son from his first wife that he built okay. the company with, or the second wife who he had the, you know, affair and had married later on to him. Keeping with the Bible, he gives it to the younger son. Like in the Bible, it's Solomon, and this one it's Joel. He gives it to Joel. So there's some backlash automatically from the first wife and her son about mm-hmm. this is wrong, we're not letting it stand, and so war just kicks out between them. <laughs> wow. Can you tell so our we, listeners? Oh, go ahead. No, I'm saying, so we fast forward to Humboldt, where Humboldt is like the, the sixth book, and we come to this point where Joel has fallen out of grace. He got caught up in his own, you know, he caught up with women and notoriety and power, and he just went to his head, and he lost his mind, and he almost ran the company in the ground, so he had to go mm. away. Don had to come back and save the company, the oldest brother, who wasn't worthy in the beginning, but he did. Now Joel has gotten to come back and saying, okay, I realize that things aren't working. I know that I've turned my back on God. I've got to get this right. I've got to figure out what to do. So humbled is him coming back. The uh. other piece is that he married a woman from India um, so he could merge his business with hers because he just wanted to merge the company, even though they don't have the same religious backgrounds. Mm-hmm. So he decides he's going to divorce her, start over, start fresh. Just when he tells her he's getting a divorce, at the end of broken, she tells him she's pregnant, and she is. So now he's wow. got to figure out what to do. Wow. Can you give us a little bit more? A lot, a lot is going on 
and humbled, uh, we see Joel being humble, but can you introduce a little bit more to Joel? He's the son from the second wife who the father had an affair with. Um, can you give us a little bit of background on him, even from when he was a kid, briefly to how he's developed into this yes. man he is today? Yes. The interesting thing about David was the father, the the, the patriarch, and, and um, he and Madeline Madden was his first wife, and like I said, they had built this, this company, and they had some issues in the marriage, but anyway, David cheated, had an affair with his secretary. The secretary that Madeline hired, you know, the wife, the wife hired the secretary to help her husband so that she oh. could help the <laughs> Wow. So, yeah, but Joel, Joel came out of this marriage. You know, his father um, had his affair with the, with the secretary, and then, you know, they ended up getting married, and, um, and Joel came out of that. And what's interesting is that even though Sherry ended up with the husband, she was never viewed by society or even herself that she was a legitimate wife. You know, Madeline was still there. She was still very much active in the business. So the first wife was never gone. She was always very present. So Joel's mother never had a sense of worthiness or of mm. acceptance. So that filtered down to Joel that he didn't. He lived with his father, but he didn't. And he, and he got some um, a lot of the perks and benefits from a financial perspective, which the other kids, you know, envied. But he never had that sense of I have a family, I have sisters and brothers. He felt re- he felt rejection himself. So when he grows up, you know, he takes on this role, his father, you know, appoints him, and he feels like he's supposed to do it. So he does a good job at first, even though he has daggers and snares coming from all over the place for Madeline and her son. They're just, like, you know, determined not to let him succeed. Mm-hmm. But but he does. But he's he even though it looks like because he ended up living with his father and he had his father and his mother together that everything would be great, no, he still suffers some of the outcome that comes from a divorce and remarriage. He said uh, because it was never resolved. It was yeah. never resolved between the first breakup. So it filtered into all the lives of the children because mm. the adults couldn't get it together, forgive, accept, and let things be, you know, accept reality. They couldn't right. do that. So it trickled down to Joel, Don, Tamara, all of the kids. And so you see mm-hmm. Joel emerge, but he's not this great, happy guy that you think he is because he has some issues too. Mm. Okay. And I thank you for that, showing him from how he's developed into, and he's probably really wanting, all kids do, they want to please their parents to the utmost. Mm-hmm. It just drives, you know, you you just want to get your parents' approval. And how long have Joel and Zara, his wife, you know, you said he married an Indian woman to merge their companies. How long have Joel and Zara, how long have they been together when they decide to divorce, and we know it's not mutual, I'm assuming, because you said Zara tells Joel she's pregnant, but how long have they been together? And was it just a business relationship, or did Joel really love Zara? It, they've been together about six months now, and it was 100% pure oh, business relationship. Months. Yeah, yeah. It was what? an arranged marriage with, um, back, if you go back in some of the prior um, uh, novels in the series, like Chosen and Destin, you see that Joel wanted to expand into international territory. He was determined to do it. He felt like his father didn't do it, couldn't do it, so he's now able to do it. But he decides that he can do it without the help of God, without his father's vision. He can do this now. He's been successful. He can handle this. So already, you know, he was already running off the rails at that point, but, you know, he was just too caught up in himself to see it. So 
without the approval of the people that were giving him wise counsel, he went ahead and, and found this company where the father was, has, Zara is the father, was that father's only child. And so he wanted to, keeping with the tradition of that part of India, uh, want to arrange a marriage, you know, for her to make sure she was taken care of. And he was also ill. So he wanted to make sure that his daughter was was with somebody who would who would take care of her, um, and you know, and then in exchange for that, he was willing to give up half of the ownership of their company to this person, to Joel. And so Joel accepted her, um, and it was purely hundred percent. There was no love. There was no love. Period. Wow. It was business. Period. That's it. Jeez. That's and not Zara, good. though, you know, she wanted to make it. She 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 was. Um, was very fond of him and wanted to be married to him and wanted to make it work. Plus, for her, since she had moved to the U.S., she had moved to Detroit with him, she couldn't go back um, home as a divorced woman and single. There would be too much shame on her and her culture. And so that was not even an option for her. So, you know, she would, she did everything she could to 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 stay and to, to win him over and, and, um, and humble wow. to see that. She has the help of her sister-in-law, or estranged sister-in-law, the, the sister that has never really claimed Joe, but she has her own me, uh, her own agenda. But she's willing to help Zara become this big, you know, corporate woman that will make Joe, uh, you know, be more appeal, uh, uh, more interested in her because she's becoming her own woman. So, yeah, Zara comes out of her shell and humble. Jeez, now, okay, it's an arranged marriage. I don't want to get the whole story away, but Joe, Joe did he... Just this? Did he not know anything about her? He just knew the father, and then he disagreed to marry whoever his daughter he gave right. to him. He like, met. Oh, he wow. met Zara. Yeah, Zara came uh, to a couple of meetings when they were going through the proposal and working out the deal. Uh, he met her like two times, and that was it. I mean, they've never had any, Jeez. you know, date or anything. No. But you know, in keeping with there, are many arranged marriages around the world. Uh, many marriages are arranged around the world, not. There's very few countries, continents that actually do it the way we do it. Where you just go out and pick your person, and you know, and you know, make it work or not. Um, right. But in that culture, it's it's not uncommon to to have your parents or somebody pick out the person for you, and then you may get like a meeting or two be- that week leading up Ooh. to the marriage. But that's it. What if you just can't stand a person? <laughs> well, you know what? Though what's interesting is that. <laughs> Wait, what's interesting, the divorce rate is less than ours because a lot, it's based on matching. Like I, many, many of my coworkers, they're, you know, are Indian, and they, they match it on, you know, the kind of foods you like, the, you know, the, your religious, your faith. They match it on so many things that we don't even consider, you know. So it's, <sighs> it, it, you know, it's, that's, that's, what, that's what they know, you know. It's not saying that it works because it, there are people who are in those marriages, some of them who don't like the person or they're not attracted to the person, but that's what you yeah, know. Yeah, but then if you're in a culture where getting a divorce is, like, hugely taboo, you really wouldn't know, even if the divorce rate is low, that the person was happy. Because years ago in America, the divorce rate was low. And my grandmother, my grandparents were married about 60 years. I mean, they never divorced. My great-grandparents never divorced. My great-grandfather was an extremely abusive mm-hmm. alcoholic. But mm-hmm. my great grandmother would have never divorced him, just because yeah. the divorce rate. Like my grandmother would tell me that that doesn't mean that people are happy. Exactly. <laughs> but exactly. But look at what you said. 
back in our and and prior and our even in our culture back in the day, people just if you got married, it, you stuck it out. I mean, there were rare yes. situations they just stuck it out. Doesn't mean yes. they were always happy, but just like with exactly. them, doesn't mean they're happy. They just stick yes. it out. <laughs> it, it, yes. So what's, what makes Joe, he's in this arranged marriage, he's come to this agreement. If he divorces Zara, it's, it's going to bring shame to him too, especially probably in the eyes of Zara's father and her rest of her family. Like, how could you do this? What's happened to cause him, again, I don't want to get a story away, just a hint of it. What has happened to cause Joe to decide, six months in, I want out? Well, Joe... Joe has gone through some challenges with the company. Like I said, he was doing well. He had tripled the revenue in the company, and he was, I mean, they were soaring. They were rocking. And then he got caught up, like I said, in his, his own press, you know, all the notoriety. Mm. He was, like, voted most eligible single, you know, in Detroit and all this stuff, and he just got caught up with women and sidetracked, and he just lost perspective. And so the company started toppling. He it started, you know, having, like, record losses and, you know, Madeline's using this to push him out and putting the pressure. So he just decided that he was going to step down. Gave the gave the company to Don to, to uh, come back. Don came back from South Africa. And I, I can talk about this. This is not in humble. People have to go back and read other books in the series to get this. But Joe had just gone to the point where he basically had reached rock bottom. He just had, you know, used all his he 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 used all his favors. He was done. He just couldn't get anything to work. So he just mm. decided to step back try to restore his relationship with the Lord. He went to Chicago where he has a friend, where he's had a long-term friend, and um, he was just going to regroup. And and, and um, also during that time in one of the past books, you'll see that she, I mean, um, Zara had, she had like a nervous breakdown. Really, it's, it's not in Humble. It's one of the earlier ones. But so you asked me why, how did he get to this point? He realized that, look, I'm not doing right by this woman. I, I recognize I'm sorry. He, he repents for it. He apologizes to her. And he just feels that she's going to be better back at home um, with people that love and care about her because there's nothing he can do for her, really. He, he can't uh, even take care of himself right now. Okay. Can you just, I like Zara. I'm not sure Joe, Joe's one of my favorites, but... When you when you get, read the backstory and uh, you follow how that's why when I was asking about the backstory you can come to even love him and see how he's developed and that's what any human being once you get we all have a story once you know more about a person there's there's nobody you can't love now can you tell us what type of person is is Zara she sounds really extremely submissive uh, and and I I know women who are Indian and that's not a I don't think they're submissive. They're just as strong as anybody else. But she just comes across that way to me. Does she have dreams of her own, or is her life goal just to marry somebody and help all their dreams come true? Well, you know, and I'm going to say this in the, the, you know, running the danger of being, you know, making too broad of a sweeping statement, but women, Indian women in the U.S. are, are, are going to be different to some degree than the Indian women in India because, the ones that make it here already have something extra. They were able to, you know, especially if they got here on their own. I mean, they, they had something that allowed them to be more forceful, more domineering to get here and succeed in the corporate arena. Mm-hmm. Women, uh, some of the women in India, and I can say this, even speaking with someone that I, that I work with and I, that I know personally who is in a management role, but no one in her family can know she's a manager. They don't know her job. They don't know 
Oh, her, her, her money has to go into um, an account, and her brother actually has to be the one who actually pays the bill, even though it's her check. Wow. Her brother has to pay the bills, the house that she bought for her mother, that they all live oh. in, has to be in her brother's name. Nothing can come from her, and that's, you know, for not for everybody, and then, not for everyone. Not everyone is like that, but it's mm-hmm. very much a male-dominated um, arena, and it's changing. But mm-hmm. yeah, so, so Zara, seeing how she is and being very submissive, that is that is very common, very very common, in in, in, in many parts of India. But you see that Zara is that's a choice she's making because you see that in working with her father, she was the one who ran the company with her father. She knows how to run that company she knows their company so she decides that with the help of her sister-in-law <laughs> who's doing it for her own motivation and reasons um it takes on this more leadership more corporate perspective and she starts to build a name for herself and so and it's interesting because joel is drawn to that he likes strong women he likes to see you know them out there taking charge um he likes that that um energy uh, versus when she's very passive, he's he's turned off by that. So she has to find who she is, a balance between being a strong woman but yet still being a woman. And that's mm. like us, you know. You want in a relationship, sure, men like women, I'm sure, who have some goals and some aspirations, who are willing to, to do some things, but they also don't want a, a woman who's going to run over them and, and, you know, and reduce them as a man. Right. <laughs> you know? Right. Can you, do you always, Patricia, and I want to talk briefly about some of your other books, but do you always tackle tough real-life issues? And you even bring in some cultural issues. Uh, do you always tackle these types of issues in your novels? And if so, why do you, why do you decide to do that? I, I think every book that I've written tackles some type of issue. I've had, you know, whether it be abuse or, um, you know, uh, sexual assault or incest. I've had ones that have dealt with, um, you know, um, a child being molested. I've had, you know, a racial, like a couple, one couple where they were interracial couple and how they were shunned by the church, by the, you know, by by the church, the place that they thought they would have safe haven. I've dealt with mm-hmm. breast cancer. I've I've dealt with, you know, adultery. All those issues because. People are people. We we live this life, and everybody, nobody gets through here, you know, issue-free. It's just you don't get through your life issue-free. You're going to have mm-hmm. something you're going to deal with or somebody. But the message in my book is that no matter what you go through, that if you allow yourself to have a relationship with the Lord and allow your faith to be developed, you can get through any situation, particularly when you're willing to embrace the concept of forgiveness. Forgiving mm-hmm. the person, forgiving yourself, letting it go. People say, I forgive, but I don't forget. Forgetting it, meaning, yeah, it's the image, the, the memory may be there, but there's not the sting, the hurt, the bitterness, the anger, the disdain feeling that you have. That's what you have to let go of. So I feel like no matter what challenge you go through, if you can have some faith and you can embrace forgiveness, you can get through it and your life can continue to move on this upward movement. Mm. So. That's that's why yeah I'm always tackling because I think I also like think people like to read people love drama they just don't want to mm-hmm. have it in their lives but they love writing right. about drama <laughs> you <know? laughs> yeah you just don't want it in your life let me read about somebody else's right now you and I and I can tell you Denise one of the things that's blessed me many times is I'll have people who like no regrets have dealt with breast cancer and how it affects a marriage and a family and the husband cheating and all that stuff 
people will read that, and people have read um, the one where the child was sexually abused, uh, and then the one where uh, where the family is going through this this issue when somebody dies. And I would literally have people write me and tell me, you know, I went through this situation in my family, and you know, then it made me think about another way of responding, or this helped me think about how I need to handle this situation. So people can oftentimes look at what seems made up and and glean from it, though, and say, okay, well, you mm-hmm. know what? Yeah. You know, I, I can handle it that way. Yeah. I think fiction is. It, we know with the fact that we we're not born with a subconscious mind. We develop it generally by the time we're seven, and definitely by ten. We we start hiding things from ourselves that we don't want to see, or we're not born with that subconscious mind. So I think with novels, people feel safer to let things that are hidden kind of surface yeah. because they feel like it's not this not this is not about me. So I don't have to hide and keep my guard up. And then that's right. when you may be some some good you can some awareness can come through when they feel safe in their guard. It's, that's for all of us. Now I know your books. You write this. You write sequel books, and then we've had other authors who. I'm like, your book is so. The first novel was so good. Are you going to write a sequel? And some say, no, I don't do sequel books. But I know you you do, and we've had authors on who do do sequel books. Have you always written sequel novels? And what would you say are some of the advantage pros and cons to writing a sequel? I have not always written sequels, but knowing. If I had known them, I know now I would have written one sooner because ah. I I love the books and I and I take nothing from it because the books I've written I pray and I know that God wanted me to write those books and that's it came in the order that it was supposed to come in and I rest in that so I don't have any regrets about it but I mm-hmm. love writing the sequel because this, matter of fact this series is only going to be three books it's now seven and I think they'll 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 close out I just finished writing the seventh installment which will come out next spring Unforgiving but what's good about a sequel is that even as an, a writer, you get to know the people. Like, I feel like I know these people. Like, when I close out with Unforgiving, I mean, really, it was like a moment where I'm like, okay, let me say goodbye to them. You know, it's their family. <laughs> <laughs> their family. So you know them. And the, it's like, you know, when you write, um, if you had to write the obituary for a family member, you can do it. If you tell me to write it for a family member, I'm not going to know them. I, I don't uh... know, you know your cousin, so I couldn't write it. But you wouldn't do better. The more you right. know a person, the better you can tell their story. So mm. by seven book seven, I know these people very well. I mean, literally, ah. they literally write the story. The character, like, it's not what Patricia would say in this um, situation. It's what would Madeline say. Well, we know Madeline. Mm. We know her. We know how she's going to react and respond. Ah, now, very interesting. Now, the downside of a sequel, if there is one, is that <laughs> your readers get so hooked on the characters that they don't ever want to let them go. So they will have you tied to those characters for, you know, literally, if if I don't kill these characters off, I mean, literally, they have to all go down in a plane crash somewhere or something. Otherwise, (laughs) people are going to be like, what's happening? You know, know, then then even that, somebody said, well, we don't know if the crash was actual. Did anybody get any, will people get actually (laughs) identified? (laughs) They don't want to let the characters. My mother was the one, she said, you're gonna to have to you're gonna to have to kill all of them in a plane crash. My mother said that. Who doesn't even like flying? She's like, you gotta kill them in a plane crash. <laughs> oh, because the readers want to know what's happening next to this person, and do they have any kids, and so on and so right. forth. <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, who can you tell us about the sister who tries to control her father's 
um, multi-million dollar the, the ministry business. Uh, there's a, there was one of your novels. Can you tell us about the sister who? Uh, I know I'm thinking about your 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 trilogy, Camera. Chosen, Destined, and Broken. The sister in there who tried to control her father's ministry business. Yes, and that's Tamara, and that's the sister-in-law who's actually pushing Zara along right now. There, ah. that's all part of that series. Yeah, Tamara was keeping with the Bible because I I actually kept some key parts of King David's story in this series. And one piece mm. that I kept is that in there he had a daughter, Tamar. My character's name is Tamara. His daughter was Tamar, and we know that Tamar was raped by yes. her mother. Mm-hmm. That is kept kept true in this in this series. And so Oh really? Um, back in the yes. Back in the earlier books, Anointed and Betrayed, she we see what happens. We fast forward now to um Humble where she, and Broken she comes back. She's been gone for 14 years. She was estranged from the family, um, couldn't handle what was going on. And she's on the run. Then you, in Broken, you realize you have to go back and read Broken before you do Humble <laughs> because you realize she's on the run. Okay. And um, so she runs back home for, for some help and safety, quite honestly. And while she's there, she decides that, look, you know, I, I'm just as entitled to run this company as everybody else. All my brothers and all the men have done it, and they've run it into the ground. So, you know, now it's my time, and I'm I'm entitled, and I'm going to, you know, do this and do that. And she comes back with such a wrong attitude, um, and you see that a lot of times when people are angry and bitter and mean, like you said, their backstory, that's just a mask for hurt and rejection. Mm. And it comes across in certain ways. You know, it's kind of like when you have a, a little, if anybody's ever had a pet and a dog that's been wounded and he gets in the corner and he just, you know, it, he protects himself. So anybody comes to him, even somebody who means well, that dog's natural instinct is to protect himself because he's wounded and he knows he's wounded and he's vulnerable. So she looks like she's always, you know, guards up, you know, go after everybody. But when you start to tear down the layers, you start to undercover, get under the covers and see who she is and what's motivating her, you see that she's hurt. She's wounded. She's never let go of those things of the past, and she's blaming people. And sometimes when you blame people who are dead, it puts you in a tough spot because you're not going yeah. to get them to come back and apologize. It's not going to happen. Mm. So you've got to be able to, to to let God help you get over that hurt so you can live on. Otherwise, your your days you're living right now, your future is held prisoner to your past. Yeah. You can't have a good day. Because you're still mm. hanging on to the bad days of the past. So she yeah. has to get to this place where she's going to be free. Mm. Okay. Why does Don Mitchell, and then I want to talk about book marketing and some other things that our, our listeners can, can benefit from as we come near the last 15 minutes of the day show, but why does Don Mitchell believe, what makes him believe he's chosen to heal his family? We just talked about the daughter who was you kept in line with the, the King David story right by a brother, which is pretty massive. Um, and then we we know about Zara and jo- Joel and the first wife and her her child. And there's just so much going on. And David, the father, and he has an affair with the the secretary that his wife brought into the scene that to help him with his business. But mm-hmm. why does Don believe after? I mean, there's so much going on in his family. What makes him believe that he's the one chosen to heal his family? You know, sometimes in the middle 
of all kinds of drama and trauma going on, even in our in our actual family, like a live family. There'll be that aunt or that grandmother or that cousin who just still believes the best, still has that, still praying, still believing that things are going to be okay. And even if it doesn't seem like it makes sense to other people, sometimes when God has called you to do something, it's not going to look okay to other people. It's not going to make sense because it wasn't the vision for them. It was a vision that God gave to you. Mm. And I say that for people who are looking to write, people who are willing to step out and go to college when they haven't gone, you know, they're, they're in their 30s, 40s, 50s, people who are looking to change jobs, people who are looking to get married, people who are looking to do whatever they feel they have a passion to do in their lives, or even on this call. When God has told you to do it, he's given you that seed, and you're supposed to go, go for it. Don't let other people be, force you to question it or to set it aside because people will come to you with their perspectives, but they don't have the yes, vision of going yes, to do that yes. thing that God has given you. Oh, my you. goodness. <laughs> Somebody was just talking about that. And that, that to me at work the other day. <laughs> when you do something, you make a decision to get married, to have kids, to not have kids, to stay at a job, to leave a job. You get all this other input. It don't care what you decide. Everybody's going to give you their input. <laughs> that always and you got to accept that and don't be mad at them because it's they're speaking from their perspective their life right. experiences their faith god gives everybody their measure of faith to live their life and the voice that you hear from god is for you i can't expect to hear to do what denise is called to do or even even what these even makes sense to me because i was not given her vision i was not given that anointing i wasn't created and packaged the way you were packaged to to handle your journey. I'm just put together for Patricia and what God has called me to do. So when I hear from God, it's like all the other noise is is, is quieted. It's silence for me. Mm. Because and I know okay. that because I would not be writing to this day because trust me when I tell you, my corporate America career has been phenomenal. Period. I, I acknowledge that I'm not bragging, I'm just saying I know that he is an, he's just led me and given me such tremendous favor in my career. There would be no reason for me to do anything else, honestly. Wow. But I'm writing out wow. of obedience because this is what he's called me to do, and I know that I'm an encourager, and this is one way that I will encourage people that I don't even know, that they would just mm. know that there is hope. No matter what you go through, there is hope in Christ Jesus. That is yes. why, why I write, and that is uh-huh. why I started, and that's why I will continue until God tells me that I've done all that I'm supposed to do. Wow. Good for you. Now, what's the major lesson that Don... As he as he does these, whatever he does to try to help uh, help his family to heal, what what is if he had to learn one or two major lessons as he goes about this, as the story unfolds, what would you say his one to two major lessons that Don learns are? Don't get caught up in the drama that's going on right now. Remember to see the future. Envision the future of where you want to be. Don't get caught up in the in the stuff right now. This is just mm. this is just the valley, but you have to continue to look at the mountaintop. Wow, you, you know, and that's not that's it. not so easy to do, especially if that nope, drama is not. really thick. <laughs> it's not it, exactly. Easy. Exactly. It's not, but that is your challenge. You got to continue to not get caught. I always say, not get caught up in the right now. Because this is just a season; it's going to pass. But you just got to keep pushing towards the goal. I mean, that is really it. You got to keep pushing towards the goal. Just like somebody's a marathon runner, you know, you 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 get kind of you know tired in the middle, 
But the only way to get where you're going is you've got to keep on pushing through the pain, mm. the heartache, through the struggle, through the challenge, knowing that you're going to get there. Yes. So Don, yes. Is, you know, Don was not get caught up in it. And also, you know, for him, also for him, the main thing is forgiveness, recognizing mm. that people are human. People are human. We're not going to be perfect. You're, if you're living this life, you should expect you're going to get hurt. Sometimes I have people yeah. that you love or, or, or care about, <laughs> you know, right. most of the time, because nobody else, you don't care what they say. But you're going to get hurt. But it's not the end of the world. It's not. Mm-hmm. You've you, you got to step back and say, okay, am I taking offense to something that maybe wasn't intended to be offensive or maybe it was a mistake, but sometimes you just have to be the bigger person and say, you know what, I'm setting that aside. I don't like what you said or what you did, and I was wrong. But get to a place of forgiveness and not forgiving with conditions. I'm going to forgive you, mm-hmm. but you better not do it again. Well, they, they, they shouldn't do it again, but they may. Right. Yeah. It doesn't mean yeah. you got to live with that person or people that hurt you or offend you. you got to stay around them all the time, but you at least got to let it go. There may be times where you got to set up some boundaries, you know, where I, I, you can't, can't hang out with me all the time no more, but you got to let that, that hurt, and you got to be able to pray for yeah. them and, and seek help for them, you know? Right, because it just keeps it keeps. We're all connected, I believe. And if if you yep. if you got if you've got that anchor there of unforgiveness, you're still hooked to yourself, and this will get yourself to to, to be free. Uh, what major lessons did you learn while you were writing your first novel, your very first novel that you continue to use today when you're writing? When I was writing my very first novel, I was so naive about writing. I knew nothing about the craft. You know, I'm coming from a, a person who's a technical background, you know, and whose passion, my passion, if you said I had passion, writing is not my passion, it's my calling and my ministry. Numbers and finance, that's my passion. I could literally mm. sit and spreadsheets and budgets, literally, seriously, for no, and just do it for free. I mean, that's, I just love that. I, I'm mm-hmm. already doing my budget, my household budget for like October. You know, I'm just, I'm just excited, can't wait. <laughs> You know, to get to a new budget. <laughs> you know, that's my <laughs> that's my thing. Okay. So so for me, you know, it's it's um my lesson is that I I just started writing, I didn't know anything about the craft. But what I learned early on is that if God is calling you to do something, then for me who had no intention of ever going back to school again, I had my masters, I was done. But I started taking some writing classes early on because mm. I said, you know what? I understand how to tell a story. Got that, got it down. But how to tell it well and to be able to adhere to the craft, which is telling the story better, that's the part I got I to gotta work on, I got to improve. I got to be receptive to people. Um, big lesson I learned in Nobody's Perfect. I mean, it made, like, number one on the bestsellers list. At that time, mm-hmm. African-American faith-based novels, it was the first one to get there. It, it, it That was like a new genre. It just didn't even exist really before that. Mm-hmm. So... Um, it did really well. People love the story about the, the woman who wanted to get married and had this 12-point checklist and all this stuff and yada, yada. So it was the storyline was great. Mm-hmm. It could have been, at the time, I thought it was w- written very well. I realized that later on that, oh, my God, it needs so much work. But you got to take feedback. you got uh, to have, have a thick skin, take feedback, yeah. sift it out. Because sometimes I realize, like one person sent me a, a note on post on my website saying, you know, um, I didn't like the novel because it had too many commas. And I said, okay. Too many commas. Too many oh, okay. commas. And I said, okay. okay. And I said, well, you know what? And sometimes people can say things that are just brutal and mean. And I said, you know what? That's okay because 
sometimes it has nothing to do with me. Their, their response and reaction it has nothing to do with me. And I would even send people a note saying, I understand you didn't like the book, and I have no problem giving your money back. Even if you bought it from the store, I have no problem refunding it because I understand you didn't like it. It's okay. It's, mm-hmm. it's okay. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Everybody's not going to like everything that you do, but I understand that you've got to also be receptive to feedback, but then mm-hmm. sift out those that have the wrong spirit. Ah, yeah. Yeah, and one thing you do have to, that was a challenge I had. You have to, look, I tell people, work with an editor. If you don't want to work with an editor because you don't want to get the feedback from the editor, don't worry, you're still going to get feedback. What you do in life is not just even being a writer, just working a job, even if you don't work and people just see you in the community, whatever you do, you're going to get feedback. So you have to know who you are and 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 whose you are, and you have to be prepared, like you said. But I think it also is important, as you said, you got to know which feedback to just toss back out to say, uh, you know what, because if you don't, you'll walk around feeling bruised, so you don't want that either. And you may may stop writing. There are people who get feedback, and they stop writing because they've been wounded. But like I said, not everybody, not everybody, but the majority of people are positive and very supportive and encouraged. It doesn't mean they have to like the story to still be positive and encouraging. But there are some people who don't, you know, who are not, for whatever their reason. has nothing. To, you've got to accept has nothing to do with you. But you right. made a good point about editing. To me, a, a successful author has to be willing to accept editing. I mean, yes. I, not only do I get the edit with my editors, I have advanced readers, about, you know, six of them who read and edit and give me, I mean, some serious. Their editing feedback is, is tougher than my actual editor at the publisher. And mm. I take that, and I take it to heart, and I make the changes. That's. Not the editor I have now, Joy Lynn Ross is my editor now, and I love her. She's amazing. But editors I had in the past where one time I didn't get very much feedback from my editor, and I was I was really hurt and disappointed because I'm like, no, this book needs some editing. I know it has to happen. Right. So tell me now and let me just mm-hmm. go ahead and make the changes. <laughs> right. <laughs> so look, you know, don't don't get it twisted. You you have to do some work. It may sound good at first when you're reading it. That's great. But get out that red pen, yes. take, set aside your, your, your head as the writer, and then look at it purely as the editor and go back and cut up your story and get it tight. Mm-hmm. No, I, I truly agree. have to ask you this because I like to give tips to our, our listeners and, and every guest I've learned from and I know our listeners have. Now, writing and publishing a book, and I, you, you, know, you always hear this until you get into actually publishing something, that's just the first step. Then you have to sell the book. What for? What can you offer several? Whether it's two to three or more marketing steps that you found that have worked for you, because different people use different things. What might work for one person might not work for the other. But a couple of marketing steps that you found that have worked for you. Yeah, several things. One is to get yourself some, um, you know, some some postcards for fifty dollars. You can get like a thousand, a couple thousand, whatever, and. And get your mailing list, and when your book's coming out, make sure you send it out to people. Um, get some book signings with your local, you know, chain stores. I've been doing it for a long time, so a lot of it's, it's, it's easier for me to get, you know, just put together a book tour. But get some book events, whether it be, um, you know, through your church or through the library or through bookstores or book clubs. Get some events and then send out postcards to people in that area, letting them know that you're going to be doing that. Also, make sure you have a website where your book is pro- prominently displayed. Uh, when you go to events, make sure you get people's email addresses so you can start building an email list and 
send out an e-blast, you know, uh, three months before your book comes out, two months before, and then when it actually comes out, those kind of things are, are, are low cost. I personally subscribe to um, some of the paid e-blasts, like Good Girl Book Club, I love. I, um, um, Ella Pearls, I love that. I love the, um, for me, the Black Christian um, book promotion is, is great money spent. So I will, like, subscribe to some of those. Um, Cush City, they do a great job. And they're really cost-effective, um, very economical, and I will, like, pay and they'll send out e-blasts to their list. Their list, some of them have, like, 120-some thousand people on their list. Now, mm-hmm. not everybody on that list is going to buy a book, but that's exposure that you're getting. Um, right. So those are the things, yeah, that, that I do um, consistently. And every book... In this in this in this Mitchell family drama series, out of the six that are out right now, um, I think they've all been at number one uh, okay. on the Christian bestsellers list. And, and and Humboldt was on there for two months in a row, and then the third month it was number four. So yeah, okay, it, it good worked. for you. Where can our off-the-shelf listeners get copies of Humboldt and your other books? They can get it at stores. They, like, you, like you said earlier, they can go to the store. If they don't have it, they can order it. They, Amazon, Barnes & Nobles, Walmart, any of those online, Kush City, um, Black Book Promo, any of the places where they have books, I mean, they're, it's through a major publisher. So you can get the books anywhere. And when you pull it up under um, Patricia Haley, is what I write under Patricia Haley Glass is my married name, but under Patricia Haley, you can also go to my website, read excerpts from my um, – it will be like three chapters from each of the books. And many of them have video trailers. So you can see a little video about the story. Um, there's all kinds of you know things on there, neat things out there. So you know, check out the website. There's links to purchasing there as well. But Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, Walmart, all the main main one, um, uh, Books a Million, any of those, they can get the books. Okay, then. Can you let us know about any social networks that you're on? That well, oh, I forgot that part. You talk about advertising. That's one of the best ones. Get you a. Make sure you have a. I'm on the. I'm on Facebook under. Um, either Patricia Haley Glass under my Facebook one, or my author, author Patricia Haley fan page, where I put cop, you know, book cover and book events and things coming up. Definitely use the free, the free um, social media. I can't believe I missed that when advertising your book and just letting people know what you're doing. Uh, if there's a book coming out, if you have a cover, put the date that's coming out, or if you're going to be somewhere. That's free, and you start to, and people can pass it on to other people. So, yeah, I'm on Facebook, so. You know, look me up okay. there. All right, or you my guys. Website. Okay. Uh, we have had the pleasure of interviewing Patricia Haley Glass this morning, on Illinois native, and she's authored several best-selling novels. Her latest, which is on the market right now, is Humbled, and it's a it's a book and a part of a book series. You can visit her online, read her book excerpts, learn more about her and her books at patriciahaley.com, and that's P-A-T-R-I-C-I-A. H-A-L-E-Y.com, PatriciaHaley.com. We want to thank Patricia for being here with us, and we thank each of you, our off-the-shelf listeners, for being here. If you missed the first part of the show, you can always go back and listen to the show in entirety after it streams and it hits the archives. You can Our, our shows stay up indefinitely. We have people who come back and listen to show, interviews we've done for over a year ago, and they enjoy the interviews. So the, it'll it'll stay up for as long as we're here at Blog Talk Radio. As I always tell you, you are so incredibly awesome. You are amazing. And I do hope that you go out and create a fabulous day for yourself. Please support Patricia Haley. 
PatriciaHaley.com. And please go support my new book, Love Pour Over Me. Uh, and my website is Chistel, C-H-I-S-T-E-L-L.com. But we really want to focus on Patricia and support her, her and her new book, Humboldt, today. Thank you, guys. See you back here next Saturday. We'll have another awesome guest. Remember, off the shelf, Saturday mornings, 11 o'clock Eastern Standard Time or New York City time if you're connecting from another part of the world. Bye for now. Patricia, I'll shoot you an email. Thank you.